It's the 27th of August, 2017, and this is episode 342 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Jonathan Mohan. Hello, hello. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hey, everyone. Hey, folks. Thanks very much for joining us today. we got a couple of conversations to have, and the first one we'll just jump right into. In the spirit of sometimes you're a shining example, sometimes you're a horrible warning, I'm going to admit that I put a small amount of Bitcoin into an ICO that wound up being just a flatten out run with the money scam. And I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that experience because it taught me a few things. <laughs> oh, Okay. okay, I have so many questions, but first of all, why did you think this was a good idea in the first place? I thought it was a good idea because it seemed like such a great opportunity. It was for a project called metagame.io, and I actually last year created a game prototype that took the idea of allowing essentially anybody to create their own kind of tokenized cards to be used in this card game that I was creating. So even if you weren't actually on the development team, you could still design cards and then put them into the game. And so I thought that was a really cool idea. And they had, you know, a pretty good website. It uh, looked nice. And they, you know, had real people on the website who had LinkedIn profiles and, you know, had said that they had experience working for a bunch of companies. But it was something that I had looked at maybe about 10 days before I actually put anything into it. And then I was like, eh, maybe not. I don't really care that much. And then I looked at it again right towards the end. They actually sent an email around and said, you know, we're at 98% funding and we only have 12 hours left. And so I was like, eh, you know, these things, when they sell out, they tend that tends to be a, a good indicator. And so I wound up putting in a little bit of Bitcoin. And then as soon as the project, like I said, was <laughs> as soon as it closed, then all the all the social media completely vanished, all of the websites, the subreddit, all of the accounts immediately oh. gone. Very bad sign. <laughs> Ouch. But something like that happens. Yeah. Okay. So it was so you were drawn to it because it was offering something that you wanted and you thought would be kind of cool or useful for yourself. Yeah, I like the idea, right? I like the idea and it seemed like a good opportunity. Uh-huh. What do you mean it seemed like a good... Did you think you were going to also make money off of it? Well, so they had their sales set up in such a way so that they said, all right, we're raising a small amount of money now, you know, small by the standards. So it was a couple million dollars. <laughs> it's small for an ICO. Exactly. And then in three months, we're going to, to actually launch the product that we've been working on with marketing support paid for with the funds that we're raising now. And we're going to do another sale at that point when there's actually a product and it'll be, and the, the sale will effectively be three times as much as it is right now for what you would buy at. And so it basically sets up a very easy, you know, three times multiple. Oh, just that's the oldest trick in the book. It is. Yeah, it buy is. now or the price is going to go up. That's right. I totally got suckered. <laughs> and, and it's a topic that you're, you're interested in, have been interested in a while. So that, that caught you. I mean, if there was an ICO scam to get me, it would probably be something that talked about remittances using a completely decentralized platform with privacy anonymity built in and something like that, I'd fall for that. Me too. Mine would be a decentralized audible. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's interesting. Was this the first time you had ever invested in an ICO, Adam, or have you done it before? And what were the results the last times, if any? This is the first time I've ever had an experience like this, where the project has just been an actual scam. 
This is not my first time playing around in this world. Back as far as, you know, proto shares, I've been interested in alternative cryptocurrencies that do things that are valuable and have alternative use cases besides Bitcoin. So I've been doing this for a long time. And this is actually the first one that really got me. And it's very well put together. You know, they probably spent a lot of money on the web page. But again, like just thinking about it after I realized, oh, I think I just got scammed. I was like, wait, the reason why I bought in was because it said that it was, you know, like 99% funded and it was just about to end. And it seemed like it was just this perfect opportunity for me to do that, right? Where, oh my God, you know, they've already funded all this amount of money. There's just enough room left for me to get in. All oh, these people can't be wrong, right? Well, <laughs> was there a little bit of like, uh, I don't know if peer pressure is the right word, but just seeing that other people had... Oh, fear of missing out. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. Because these projects, again, like if you buy into something at the very beginning, then there's no real guarantee that you've actually made a good decision. Because if the thing doesn't sell out, then depending on how they're handling the sale, there can be additional supply that they retain or there can... Or it can indicate, frankly, that the project isn't actually as momentum driven as, you know, many of these projects are. So that's kind of the thing is that if you see a project that looks like it's doing really well and it's going to succeed whether or not you participate, then the incentive, or at least for me, kind of the the push to jump onto it just to try and capitalize on some of that additional success, that is kind of the opportunity that I see. So like, I feel like it was very well designed. And that's kind of the interesting thing is like, if that's what you're going for, right? If you're only going for people who are opportunists, then you don't even need to raise the money up front that you're talking about. You just automate the meter, right? And so it, it shows a compelling story, right? Because that's really all the meter is doing is it's just telling you a compelling story that then can help make that decision or not. But I thought it was a very clever approach. Well, let's talk a bit about cons, right? There is a pattern to this stuff. And if you read about con artists and confidence games, which is where the word con comes from. There's a pattern to these things. The first and most important part of this is that cons target smart people, not dumb people. Dumb people think in erratic ways, don't use reasoning. Smart people use logical reasoning that can be predicted because it's logical. And as a result, a con man can steer logical reasoning. So con artists, and you you can read books about this, will tell you they actually target smart people or above average intelligence people because they are more predictable in their thinking patterns and can be steered to the outcome they want. So don't feel bad about it, Adam. This happens to everyone. Uh, It can happen to anyone. (laughs) It's not a matter of not being smart enough to notice it. In fact, that's it, it might have been <laughs> it might have been better if you were less smart. This is a compliment to your intelligence. Oh, thank, Indeed. thank you. I, I feel I feel the compliment. I feel that's a lot like the the same sage advice that I get when a bird pooped on me and someone told me that that's actually extremely it's good, good luck. luck. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, here's the other one, which is there's four parts to a con. There's the con artist, right? There's the mark that would be you, Adam. There's the shill. And then there's the patsy. That's where those terms come from. They actually come from the con man's handbook. So the shill, in your case, was the 99% funded eight hours to go. In an in-person con, there's someone who's really enthusiastic so that they make you feel like if you don't take the deal, they will. And they're part of the con. They're an actor. So they're the shill. And they're there to overcome your last objections and to push you over the top so that you can fall for it. And then finally, there's the patsy. Sometimes the patsy is is also the mark, but sometimes the patsy is someone else. So 
if in the next few days you see someone being promoted as responsible for this exit scam who proclaims their innocence, they might be the patsy, the fall guy, who is actually someone who, like the mark, is fooled into participating, but the purpose is not to profit for them, but to lay all of the the blame on them. So that's the ingredients of a con, and... Now you know a bit more. <laughs> now I know a bit more. So the Patsy is probably whoever wound up registering the website, because mm-hmm. that's one of the few places that you could really trace back to some sort of probable identity or payment method at some point. But actually, they uh, hosted it at Namecheap, and Namecheap accepts Bitcoin, so maybe they don't even have payment information on hand for them. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're getting better, right? Soon you're going to see that there's so many new people coming into this space. So you're going to start identifying these scams very easily because they're going to have spelling mistakes and poorly written white papers, and they're going to use garbage and junk terms. And that's when you know that they no longer want to get the people who are veterans. They want to get the newbies who really don't know anything. So they're selecting, like Nigerian scams that have spelling mistakes on purpose, because they don't want to get people who are on the lookout for these scams. They they want to filter those out in the beginning and get the really, really naive marks who will fall for it. So that will be the second round. On that note, on the subject of spelling errors, so I'm looking at another project that uh, Manuel Arroz and uh, Esteban, who were some of the original creators of the proof of existence concept, their latest project is called Decentraland, which is a blockchainized virtual reality property play. It's an interesting project, but I bring it up because they're getting ready to do their crowd sale in, I guess, a couple of hours today. And they were hit about a week ago by an attack that had somebody register the Decentraland.org or the Decentraland uh, web URL, replacing the L with an uppercase I. Then they were promoting that link, and they had a complete copy of the Decentraland's webpage literally put on there, and the only difference was this. And so there's almost no way to tell when you're clicking on one of these links, because an uppercase I looks just like a lowercase L when you're looking at web URLs. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's a problem with the fonts that your browser is using for the address bar because it shouldn't be doing that. In some systems, you can actually change the font in your address bar and pick something which has very distinctive, either pick a serif font because serif fonts will show that, mm-hmm. or you pick something like Courier New like a monotype font that helps defeat some of those phishing sites because then it, it really stands out like a uh, an uppercase i has you know two horizontal bars that are unmistakable that that's kind of phishing attacks um, we saw that with another ico where they replaced they simply replaced the receiving address they hacked right. into the website of the site replaced the receiving address and the money went to them instead of the the ico Yep, they're getting more sophisticated. And especially as everybody is built on top of Slack, like it seems like every project out there is using Slack as a coordination technique. We've seen optimization on on attacks, phishing attacks from there too, where essentially a user will program the swap bot to send reminders to users that look like their official reminders or look like their warnings from my Ether wallet to turn on two-factor authentication or something like that. And again, as soon as they, you know, one of the ways that you can keep safe from that attack actually is by having a hardware wallet. But one of our top Topics a little later today, or by how, not using Slack. <laughs> oh, this is true too. It, it's or true by too. typing right. the URLs yourself. So when it comes to digital currencies, I do not click on links ever. 
I either have bookmarks, which I've set, or I type out the words. When typing the words, you have to be careful not to land on a typo squat phishing site. Yep. <laughs> but in general, those are harder to do. So if you type carefully, you're much better chance of arriving at the correct site. Bookmarking, also a good thing. Never, never really click on links, email, Slack, or anywhere else. Yeah, the, the takeaway from all of this is just that the space, as you know, as many scams as we've seen before, it seems like this ICO rush has really unleashed something at a whole other level, you know, in terms of sophistication and in terms of just the number, at least that I'm coming in contact I, with. I disagree that it's more sophisticated. I really think it's just variations on the same stuff that's already been done. It's relying yep. on people don't like you know, carefully check the URL, they want convenience, they just click on a link, or, you know, just hacking into a site and simply replacing the address is, that's pretty simplistic. It's just that they got creative and applied it to this and made some money, I guess. So, okay, I'll revise that then. I think that there is, I'm, I'm curious if you agree, I think there's more. Maybe I'm just more aware of them now than I was before, but I feel like almost every ICO I see, whether I pay attention to it or not, and I don't pay attention to most because they're just like, there's so much nonsense How could going you? around. There's exactly. So many, yeah. Yeah, you know, but it feels like more often than not, I'm hearing about problems and attacks, either hacking attacks or phishing attacks or all kinds of different things. Like I hear about that more than I do about like positive news of a really cool project that doesn't have anything go wrong. Yeah, quantity, not quality. I mean, some of this stuff actually can be improved on with smart contracts. So for example, you can use Ethereum name service in order to lock down a destination address to a specific Ethereum name that has been reserved far in advance through an auction. Uh, that's one way to control the namespace. Unfortunately, Ethereum doesn't have checksums on the addresses, which causes other problems too. In Bitcoin with payment requests, there's been an effort to introduce certificate signing. You may see that with some specific payment URLs where it pops up all kinds of information about the merchant. That's a payment request URL. And that's signed with an X509 certificate. Um, all of these things haven't gotten much traction yet, but given enough um, motivation and enough address replacement attacks, typo replacement, typo squatting and phishing attacks, we're going to start seeing people you know, use the blockchain itself and the technologies to overcome these problems. Uh, so, Adam, I believe this is the same um, crowd sale that we had spoken about about a week ago. Yeah. And I think what I said to you was that I wasn't going to participate regardless of if it was an opportunity or not, because I have a, a rule that I've stuck to in this space, which is uh, you should never be in a rush to spend your money because it's your money. Like you, you have the money. You've already won. And the the speed with which someone needs me to part with my money in any exchange has always been um, proportional to the probability of it um, for whatever reason. So anytime I see something and they need me to give them money quicker than a week or two, it immediately red flags into me. And if anyone wants money that day, I just automatically say no. And then the other thing is with projects that is, uh, I always look at the team list and actually reach out to the people that they name as advisors. Because for quite a long time, there was this game played where if you talked to Vitalik and asked him a question, you'd name him as an advisor on your token sale. You know, it doesn't take much, even if you're well connected, to, to just look up the name on LinkedIn and say, hey, I see you're an advisor to this project and just see what they say as a response. And if you, if you do, do those two things, you're, you're vetting a lot more uh, token sales out and you might be aware that you are. I think that's good advice. For a couple of years now, I've had the default position of like everything that I hear about in the crypto space is a scam until proven otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> that's one way to approach it. 
in my defense, I've taken a very conservative perspective and approach to the space generally, and it really has felt like conservatism has been the wrong choice in many circumstances, and that opportunities for people who actually take the risks are pretty much meaningful opportunities, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity sorts of things. Well, it's a personal slider, you know, you you get to decide because it's your money, how conservative or risky you're going to be with your own money. And that's the beauty of you have your money and you get to decide what to do with it. Yes. Yeah, I think you might also be playing with selection bias there, Adam, because you hear a lot more of the I'm an awesome trader and I made all the right calls and timed everything perfectly stories. Then you hear the I've gradually whittled away my initial investments until now I have nothing stories. (laughs) So being a bit conservative, it's not something you brag about necessarily, but it might be just holding on and preserving your initial capital is a better play. I've only participated in one ICO. It's been pretty successful. Half the people I talk to tell me it's a scam. The other half are very excited about it, but that's the only one I've participated in, Ethereum. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, one of my favorite conferences in traditional technology is, I I believe it's called FailCon or something like that. The the name escapes me, but the entire purpose was for startup entrepreneurs to go there. And the only rule was during the conference, you could only talk about your failures. That's a fantastic idea. We should do that in cryptos. Yeah, I was just, as you were talking about that, Andreas, I thought that a, a, a blockchain failure conference would be amazing. (laughs) So I mentioned a little while ago that one of the ways that you could avoid many of the kind of phishing scams that are going around specifically in the Ethereum world is if you use a hardware wallet like a Trezor. And we were talking about before the show, Trezors actually might not be as secure as was previously thought thanks to their chipset that they're using and some kind of strangeness with that. Andres, can you kind of fill us in on this? Yeah, I'd like to preface it because when we talk about security vulnerabilities, it's often a problem whereby people hear about the security vulnerability and then they decide to not use a a product because it has some edge case, some scenario where it can be hacked. And instead they use nothing, which is the scenario that can be hacked most easily. (laughs) So I'd like to preface it. This does not in any way make Trezors inadvisable for use. In fact, hardware wallets are still absolutely the best way to securely store your currencies, including Trezors. So this was announced at uh, DEFCON 25. It's a vulnerability in the chipset. The chipset used within the Trezor is a general purpose ST Microelectronics ST32505, uh, sorry, F05 chip, which, which has a problem. And one of the problems is that you can run, um, essentially you can do a hardware trick to it called Chip Whisperer that causes it to dump the contents of its memory. And the contents of its memory include your seed and your pin, because those are loaded by the Trezor. Now, In order to execute this attack, you have to have physical access to the treasure, you have to pry open the case, and you have to short-circuit two of the pins inside the case during a very specific time in the boot sequence in order to then cause it to dump the memory while running software on the other USB sides to pull all that memory. Fairly complex thing to do. There's two ways to get around this. There's the do something workaround, which is you can upgrade to the latest firmware, which is version 1.5.2. It was issued as a security update with an urgent message from Satoshi Labs. And I upgraded my Trezor 
orders as soon as I got it. The other one is the having already done something, which is also use a passphrase. I believe in using an additional passphrase on any hardware wallet. It doesn't have to be a complex one. Four to six words are sufficient. Uh, it's difficult to brute force because it involves a lot of hashing repetitions to try each possible combination. And if you use that, then both the backup seed that you keep is much more secure because if someone finds it, they can't do much with it without the passphrase. And the device itself is much more secure because the passphrase is never stored on the device. So that would have thwarted any attacker trying to hit my Trezor even before I updated it. And, and finally, of course, keeping the Trezor secure. I prefer to store it in a fireproof safe. Um, you can store it in a bank vault, which is ironic, having your cryptos in the bank or in a locked drawer. But you know, again, this is an edge case. It's very interesting from an academic perspective. It gives us information on how to improve security. Under no circumstances does that mean that you should choose not to use hardware wallets and instead either use something less secure or try to concoct your own super duper security system that will cause you to lose all your money because you get it wrong. As much fun as that is. <laughs> right. So let's talk about where this actually kind of crosses paths with us in real life. So if I'm a user, I have my Trezor. I primarily use it at home. It, I don't really travel with it you know, at all. Does this matter to me? Not really. And again, if you upgrade to the latest firmware and or use a passphrase, which is advisable, then you don't need to worry about it at all. If you do both upgrade to the latest firmware and use a passphrase, problem gone. Okay. So in an extreme example where this does impact me, let's say I'm take my Trezor and I fly to Germany with it and my bag gets searched. If the people searching my bag have this technique technically, and I don't have a passphrase on it, then they can get access to my 24 word seed. And then they can essentially get access to my wallet from there. Is that that's like the worst case scenario? Yes. Uh, now, if the TSA or the government could hire hackers, they wouldn't have the problem of having to attend DEFCON heavily disguised <laughs> and keep dodging the spot fed game that happens at DEFCON. But unfortunately, they've discovered over the last 20 years that one, their obnoxious surveillance policies and two, their drug testing for marijuana exclude them from hiring any serious security professionals. <laughs> <laughs> and as a result, they probably wouldn't be able to pull off this type of attack. But hey. Okay, gotcha. So then this is really just the, I guess, the moral of this story is update your firmware. And I mean, we should expect to see this in uh, fixed in just future versions of the Trezor. The fix was released with the announcement simultaneously. So it would follow the responsible disclosure system because this was an exploitable vulnerability. The fix is out now. You can just you know hold both buttons down, plug it in and update to 1.5.2 and you're done. Okay, great. So then it sounds like this isn't really much of a trouble at all, so long as everybody who has Trezors takes this as the opportunity to go and upgrade. It does demonstrate why it's important to have multiple layers of security and why adding a second factor like a passphrase to a hardware wallet is a very smart um, idea. And it'll also result in better hardware wallets because that's one thing that now can't be exploited. So the Keep Key and the Trezor and the Trezor 2 all use the same chipset. I mean, do you think that this is the chipset we'll continue to see people use, or has this firmware patch actually solved the problem? Because I was under the impression this solved it from one vector, but there were still areas that it didn't. So th there are no more, there are no known vectors at this point that are still risky if you upgrade the firmware? As far as I know, there are no known vectors, but I'm going to caveat this and say whether or not this chipset exists, 
there are other chipsets. The idea that hardware will not have vulnerabilities and that physical access to a device like this, an attacker won't be able to exploit some kind of timing attack, some kind of chip vulnerability is is not a good idea. You you should assume that you have to, one, keep the hardware secure as much as possible, and two, use a second factor to prevent even against unknown attacks like this, because any hardware device, you know, no matter how hard you try to protect it, it's very, very difficult to protect the hardware that stores these things uh, to physical attacks. I I get hyper paranoid about hardware devices, because you can never know the appropriate supply chain man in the middle attack that occurred. Because you see all these people who buy a Trezor from some random guy who they're buying it from, assuming because there's still saran wrap over it, that nothing's occurred or happened onto the device. And I get incredibly paranoid about anything specifically designed to house crypto tokens. It's the Casatius coin problem. Yeah, that's that's a good thing to be paranoid about. <laughs> I have to say, my favorite trezors are the ones that Slush gave me in person in Prague. <laughs> <laughs> when it when it comes to a device made explicitly with the intention of custodying hundreds of thousands of dollars. Any person who sees it in the mail on the way to you or who decides to set up an Amazon store and be a reseller, because a lot of the times when you click buy on Amazon, you're actually buying it from a reseller, not the manufacturer. They just claim it's by Dell or, oh, it's by, you know, it, but you're actually getting it from a redistributor. If you look at the Snowden leaks and all the ways that you intercept devices and put backdoors into them. We're talking about non-trivial sums here, and someone could very specifically look at the DEF CON talk, say, you know what, I want to make $7 million this year, buy 100 Trezors, put the price at $2 less on Amazon, and then physically man in the middle of it, and then buy those little shiny stickers and saran wrap on eBay. Well, and again, I would like to emphasize that for people who are not security experts, this discussion may make them choose to run a software wallet on Windows instead of a hardware wallet because they're worried about supply chain interdiction by the NSA. And then they get pawned by a very simple Trojan or they leave their money on an exchange and they get pawned by a SIM card takeover, social engineer with Verizon or simply a phishing site. So it's important to realize that that does not in any way diminish the fact that hardware wallets are still the most secure way to hold your cryptos. We're not talking about this stuff in a vacuum, right? We're talking about this relative to other options and other ways you're going to get attacked. It's not like you're not going to get attacked. Everything in security is relative. And part of the difficulty here is that non-experts have a very hard time judging relative risk. Sure. We've seen this happen before. People said, oh, there's a vulnerability in in Signal or in WhatsApp or whatever. So people are like, oh, well, I give up. I'll just use SMS in the clear. Um, no, <laughs> that is not the correct answer. Um, we need to discuss these things, especially among security researchers and security experts in order to improve technology overall. And vulnerability disclosure is important, but this is very different from making decisions about how you store your crypto based on this. So recently we've heard about the locking in of the activation of SegWit. And I think people are going to have questions about what the practical impact is going to be of that, when they're going to start to notice it, when can they expect their fees to go down when sending Bitcoin. So I think we should talk about that. 
Well, just today I saw a post on Reddit where someone said, I paid $3 in fees. I thought SegWit was going to reduce fees. What's up with that? <laughs> Which I thought was funny. Yeah. For most people, that will not be an instant process. You won't suddenly get lower fees. First of all, in order to use SegWit, you have to have outputs, UTXO, as they're called in Bitcoin, or spendable amounts that are already produced under the SegWit rules. Now, nobody has those yet. So first you have to create some of those. And when you create some of those, you're going to do so in a standard, old-style, traditional transaction with the same fees that you would have paid otherwise. Step two is when you spend those outputs, however, the witness can be segregated and will take advantage of the SegWit discount of 75%. So you actually get lower fees for that second transaction and then on if you continue to use SegWit. We're going to see most wallets that have support for SegWit will start creating SegWit outputs by default, um, and that should make it possible to start seeing SegWit transactions, where the transactions that are spending all SegWit outputs or mostly SegWit outputs that will take advantage of this discount. Okay, so basically, just to recap what you said, Andreas, if I'm understanding this correctly, in order to see lower fees or any impact of this on your average user, you have to have moved the Bitcoin recently and it has to be in a wallet that supports SegWit? No, you will have to move the Bitcoin after SegWit is activated, not recently. Oh, yeah, yeah. You will have to move it with a wallet that supports SegWit to create SegWit outputs. And then only the second transaction that spends those outputs would actually be capable of taking advantage of that discount. Also, with wallets to support SegWit, you will be able to start giving out a SegWit address, which will start with a three. Uh, and that SegWit address will be one that allows other people to pay you in SegWit outputs that you can spend, uh, which again will make it cheaper for you to spend those outputs. That's confusing because multi-sig addresses start with a three as well. So how can you, you won't be able to tell the difference between a SegWit address and a multi-sig address now? Well, strictly speaking, it, script addresses or pay-to-script hash addresses start with a three. They can be multi-sig, oh, okay. but they can also be time lock. They can be other scripts, including what is now SegWit wrapped in a script. That's the uh, pay-to-witness script hash wrapped in pay-to-script hash or pay-to-witness public key hash wrapped in pay-to-script hash. In any case, yes, SegWit's addresses will look like a three, at least initially. Wallets that support SegWit will produce these addresses. That will allow you to receive outputs that are spendable in a cheaper way. And so you'll start seeing these things, though not immediately. I think people are probably going to run some tests and they're going to beta test their wallets. And we're going to see this roll out over, I would guess, weeks or months. And then eventually we'll start seeing SegWit transactions happening more often. And the other good news is, of course, you don't have to do SegWit transactions to get a, a reduction in fees. If SegWit transactions take the pressure off the network and reduce the size of the mempool and reduce, well, they won't reduce the size of the mempool, but they'll give the opportunity for more transactions to go into a block then that benefits everyone. If more transactions can get into a block, the average cost should drop anyway, even if you're not doing a SegWit transaction. What would you say are the risks outstanding of SegWit activation making three Bitcoin? What would you say was the probability that UASF would make a hard fork? <laughs> a UASF could have made a hard fork, but once the signaling reached 90x percent and it locked in, I, I see absolutely zero possibility of that happened. That might have happened back in August, around August 1st. 
But now that it's locked in, there's no possibility, in my mind at least, I, I could be wrong, of course, of a fork caused by this. We'll see. So is there any world where, um, you know, SegWit activates and then SegWit2x activates and then it's seen as non-canonical and then we have two networks, uh, one with SegWit and with SegWit2x? Well, SegWit2x has two parts. The first one was the activation of SegWit that's now happening. The second part is the 2x hard fork that's planned for November. If the 2x hard fork goes ahead in November, yes, we will have three coins. A lot of people think that Bitcoin Cash relieved some of the pressure for that because there is already, uh, in fact, an 8x available Bitcoin. So do we really need to do a 2x hard fork in addition on Bitcoin? But we'll see. Uh, who knows what's going to happen in November? It has nothing to do with the activation of SegWit now, though. Right. So SegWit has become effectively non-controversial, but the 2x is still the controversial part. And there, so, of course, we may have a controversial split at that point. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that clarifies that whole discussion about the potential third fork. Andreas, do you have any kind of, like, obviously you don't have a crystal ball. Do you have, a, like, an idea or a guess at what you think uh, fees will do? Because, you know, there have been articles written recently talking about how just because of network growth, and especially the price of Bitcoin growth, we're going to continue to see fees rise really regardless of SegWit. So is this an improvement, but we still have, it's like, you know, reducing the yearly deficit, right? <laughs> it's still, we're still going the wrong direction, but, you know, it's just less. Well, this will give imme some immediate relief to the fee pressure by providing additional space for transactions. And given the fact that most wallets are ready to adopt SegWit, we could see rather rapid adoption of, of the feature, which, and there, the incentives are there, right? Because if you, if you use SegWit, you uh, reduce your own fee structure. So people are incentivized to use SegWit. So it should, provide some immediate fee relief. Whether that can keep up with demand, well, that's another problem. It's a nice problem to have. It means that Bitcoin adoption continues to grow very rapidly. And then that leads to the next part. I think over the next couple of months, what we're going to see is the first production level trial runs of Lightning Network. Payment channels are now possible. A bunch of other technologies are now possible. For example, low-cost Tumblebit is now possible. Chain transactions that are not malleable are now possible. A whole bunch of smart contracts will now be possible. And of course, Lightning Network. And I expect over the next six months, we're going to see a number of other additional improvements to Bitcoin that can be rolled out as soft forks or as second layer networks. One of the first ones that's coming along, which has already been very, very well tested, is Schnorr signatures, which is a, a feature that, that has been beta tested on Elements, the Blockstream sidechain, which is a way to aggregate signatures in a transaction and reduce the footprint of signatures. That would give another 25 to 30% capacity boost. And, and there's more things like that that could be done. I'm really excited to see how Lightning Network rolls out. So SegWit really may have just been kind of the cork in the bottle. And now that it's out, we may see a bit of fast movement in a lot of areas that have been, you know, not stagnating, but have just been kind of quietly developing, waiting for the right time for quite some time. I certainly hope so. The scaling debate does not end. We've just taken an incremental step, but it was a very important precursor. Now we need to keep stacking more optimizations on top, and that journey will never end. There will always need to be optimizations. We will always keep hitting the capacity limits. And as long as we can keep pace with adoption more or less or fail gracefully when we don't and then 
jump up to the next level when we do, then things are okay, right? When, when will I get my side chains? Because I've been waiting three years for these suckers. And I really want them, and they're not here yet. So SegWit itself, I don't think does something specifically for side chains, but what it does is it gives us the ability to upgrade Bitcoin script with a soft fork in order to introduce new opcodes much, much more quickly and easily. And, you know, up to now, a lot of the soft fork updates have been in the 16 no op codes that were left over. Satoshi in his original design had left some empty op codes, some op codes that do nothing with the idea that those were for future expansion. There was only 16 of them, if I'm not mistaken, might have been just eight that have been used for various soft fork upgrades. But unfortunately, that's not much space. With SegWit, you get the opportunity to put a version number in front of the script, and that's going to allow for, I think, much more rapid developments and upgrades in the script. And that's one of the things that's required for sidechains is some new script opcodes that allow you to do double-ended pegs to do sidechains more elegantly. So I don't know when that's going to happen. I think one more barrier to that has just fallen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for the show was provided by Andreas Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens, and the show is edited by Matthew Zipkin. Have a question or comment? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. See you next time.